Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered. To find out how you can offer your guests an improved buying experience, greater peace of mind, and how you can create a new revenue stream for your organization, visit them at their website. It's www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, bookingprotect.com, the leaders in refund protection. My guest today is a guy by the name of Matt Dwyer from Valhalla Tickets. And Matt was one of the people who, when I started the podcast in about seven or eight months ago, helped me get the thing started. He helped me um, brainstorm first guest ideas, all kinds of stuff. So uh, we did a couple test episodes where I worked out some of the uh, worst aspects of my hosting. And I wanted to have him back on because I thought he would bring an interesting perspective to the podcast. Uh, Matt has a background on both the primary and the secondary side. Uh, he studied um, sports business at Ohio University. Um, and, and I just, you know, so I, he's one of those young kids that I like to talk to because I learn a lot, right? He has a, um, a philosophy that's maybe a little different than most people. Um, you know, he being younger, he sees things from a little bit different standpoint. Um, sometimes as we get a little bit further down the road or we work on different things, we become a little bit jaded. Um, or we have blind spots. I mean, we all should probably be talking up and down um, the chains of command as much as possible so that we can learn from people above us, below us, the same level, doing some similar stuff. Um, So with Matt, we've talked about the the differences between the primary and secondary market. We talked about the state of the market. We talked about some of the challenges facing the industry. We talked about some of the opportunities. We talked about fundraising and the impact of the tax reforms. Uh, We talked about you know, uh, some of the turbulence we see maybe seen in the economy, um, you know, the number of tickets for sale and the number, way to work with brokers. We talked about how colleges are educating kids in sports management and the sales reps and the uh, patients that you need to develop a sales rep. Um, we talked a whole, about a whole lot of different things. I think it's a, a good conversation. I think you'll dig it with Matt DeWire on the Business of Fun podcast. I want to welcome Matt DeWire to the Business of Fun podcast. Matt, what's happening? Not a whole lot. Just looking at snow around me and wishing for better days. How about you? Oh, you know, I'm living the dream. Uh, as I have re- I'm recording this, I am back from uh, basically, I think, my first like full-fledged almost two-week vacation in maybe ever, um, where I really like was able to completely disconnect and like kind of completely not like pay attention to anything. It's pretty good i think um yeah so it's great so i'm, uh, I'm all right um and thank you for doing this thing because i wanted um you know we've been friends for a while and you know we we have lots of conversations so i thought it'd be nice to have a conversation on the podcast because maybe it'll help people uh, learn a little bit um about you know the way we view you know kind of what it's like to talk to me offline but also like some of the stuff uh your interesting takes on you know the primary market the secondary market and just the state of the industry so thank you for this it's good to be on, Dave. Yeah. So I guess I want to start out by talking to you about um, kind of the state of the ticket market just in general, right? Because you come to the mar- uh, you come to the industry with a little, you know, I won't say it's rare now, but it's a little, you know, still kind of not usual where you've been started out on the primary side and you moved to the secondary side and, um, you know, and been very, very proud of both, right? Um, because sometimes when people move from the primary side to the secondary side, the, um, their connection to the secondary market is tenuous or they, um, how do I want to say it? Um, they've, you know, maybe they have a bad connotation and they're embarrassed about their involvement with the secondary market, but you've uh, taken great pride in it. So I kind of, and, and, and I applaud that, I've done the same thing. Um, so I want to get your idea of the state of the market because I know you tra- do a lot of traveling and you really keep your thumb on the pulse of the industry. Absolutely. And I think it's one of those things where I talk about my, you know, I'll call it my education, the school of hard knocks, where you've, where I was lucky to come up on both the primary and secondary at the same time in my career. And when I'm able to do both in my opportunities, I mean, again, this was when I was a graduate student still trying to figure out how to pay for tuition. 
And it's one of those things I've, I learned at an early age. you got to keep your pulse on all sides of the coin. The second the pulse pulls off on one, your readings get off in a hurry. And luckily for me, as I've moved forward in this business, I think with my travels, it has helped me significantly stay within the primary realm. What's going on on their end of the stick? What are they seeing? What am I seeing from my end? And comparing notes. And when you play your theoretical war games right now of where this business is going, I think it's going into some very turbulent waters right now. And I know we have discussed this multiple times at great lengths about where is this ticket business going to go? And it's one of those things where I also tell people you got to keep your pulse on what else is going on in the world. And right now, currently at the moment, I would say this, there are a few things going on. As we had talked about at the beginning of this year, I had said there's a lot of venture capital money pouring into the business. That part has held water. What has happened in the business is as these teams have overpaid, or not these teams, these brokers have overpaid for exclusivity deals because they need to hold their turf, well, for every winner, what is there also? There's a loser. Those guys are looking for elsewhere to go buy and sell tickets. And ultimately, that drives up the prices in other markets and in some cases over floods markets and ultimately damages them to the point of no return where you have $6 tickets all day. So I know I'm giving you a very long-winded answer here, but when you start looking at those parts of the equation, you sit there I gave you a very long-winded introduction, so you're totally cool. (laughs) Thanks. But it's one of those things where you start sitting there and go, um, there's a lot of money flowing out here. The question is, is when do these brokers no longer make profit and start dying out? And on the team side of the equation is, how long do these guys want to bang their heads against their secondary market? I've always said that wherever I've gone. You don't want to get into a civil war against your secondary market. And I can name multiple teams off the top of my head where that has been the case, where I talked to a team in the Midwest the one day. I was sitting there talking with them. They were saying, oh, season ticket sales are great. I'm like, that's good, but that's not your real bread and butter. How are your group sales looking? He's like, well, we've gotten crushed. I'm like, oh, really? Why is that? And he tells me, well, because they can go on to StubHub and buy seats at the 30-yard line, first five rows, for $6 a piece. I'm like, yeah, this is something we forewarned you about a couple years ago happening. And, you know, you let that genie out of the bottle, it's tough to put it back in. So, like I said, you've got a lot of teams right now trying to figure out solutions. Some of them are still trying to clean up their markets through a consolidator option. And some of them are going straight to the resale exchanges. I mean... I've seen TickPick throw a lot of money around right now. They're starting to get in that game. StubHub, I know, has been in that game heavily. And I know Vivid Seats, through its partnerships, have taken on some positions as well. And this goes back to what you've said for the longest time. If you don't build your own customer base, you're at the mercy of X exchange. And I think that reality is going to start setting in for a lot of brokers. Yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously, I've been saying that for years. So, I mean, so when I say, of course, I agree with that. I mean, that's a ludicrous statement. It's my statement, uh, but it still holds true. And I, I think we've already started to see this because, you know, I um, am in a unique position where I, you know, I've done both. I've been involved on both sides, and people come to me and they share information that they probably don't share with other people, and it, it just seems that the the marketplace is. Um, this is my you know my point of view really set for a rapid contraction at the first um, sign of any kind of turbulence in the economy and I think that there's been a lot of bad habits that have been developed um, you know either because of VC money or because the economy's been doing a little bit better um, because of ease of access to technology um, that are all going to come uh, do at one time and you know to me so when you say there's turbulent waters ahead i i I see that you know i I definitely see that and i mean 
I, I really want to sit here and say that what we've done from both the primary and secondary, there's been great things done. And there have been. But you're right. We have set up deals based on who offers the most money in some cases. We've offered – we've taken on deals – I mean primary sites taken on deals of who can help them hit their quotas. And I had a great discussion with a graduate program a few weeks ago where they had asked me, what's your idea of a perfect secondary market? And I had told them, it's not about the number of brokers you work with. It's about the number of tickets you put out there and understanding your market of what it can truly handle at what you want to do is the start of that equation. I've always said that time and time again. I could care less how many brokers you work with, and I say that from my team side days. I don't mind having 10 or 12 brokers or whatever it is I want. If I know they're good people at the end of the day, if I know they're not going to try to wreck my market, if I know, hey, we're not going to do anything to mess up anything we have built, I'm going to make sure you're protected as I'm protected by you. Because the last thing I want is to sit there and watch $6 tickets undermine my group sales staff. I don't want that to happen. So when these guys build these deals out, I look at my market and realistically say, okay, it can handle X number of tickets. And I'm not going to price them at $6 just to price them at $6. It's I want it to complement my primary game. To which I would also say is another real problem on the team side is – how many sales reps are you giving your managers? And right now you're seeing it in the collegiate space right now. There's a lot of fight for sales reps. A lot of these colleges don't want to pay that extra overhead. And I get that. I appreciate that thoroughly because think of all the different departments that have to be funded, all the different teams. But I can look at sales guys, and especially with the tax reforms that have happened in the last couple of years – Ticket offices are going to control the game. If you're not selling, I mean, look at the ROIs. I mean, Dave, how many studies have you seen what a sales rep is worth, whether it's on the team side or on the business side? Like if I go out there, get out of sports, go sell for Cintas or something like that. What is a sales rep really worth? I mean, answer that number there, but it's one of those things where you're just sitting there going – there are away seven, eight times minimum of whatever they're making. Well, if you do, if you have somebody who is trained well and given the tools to succeed, and I think one of the challenges, at least from my point of view, again, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, is that a lot of times the kids that are being trained in sales roles or being given given these positions aren't necessarily being given the tools to succeed. Um, I know that you and I have a. Um, a common friend that uh, we we both think uh, very highly of, uh, Jake Mankin at the University of Alabama, who yes. who has done a tremendous job of helping build a program and making sure everybody has the tools to be successful and you know and doing the stuff that needs to be done. Now, again, I'm not I'll I'll use Jake's name because I'm, I'm applauding him. I think he's a great guy, right? And I think he does great so work. Um, there's so many other examples, though, of like we see sales teams and sales managers who have turnover rates of 99% or more of the people they're doing. That tells me two things. Number one is that they're probably um, not being judicious in their hiring process. Um, and then the other thing is, is they're probably not giving the kids the tools to succeed because if you're failing that often, that's not on the kids. That's That can't be a hiring or a – or that can't be like a – there's so many of these kids who are just incapable of doing the job. It has to be something internal. And I think if you see something like that, you have to look at what you're doing, right? It's um, another another thing I'm fond of saying, right, is like – and this applies very well to the people we're talking to who are probably listening to going to listen to this podcast, is that if someone doesn't buy your product, doesn't connect with what you're doing, doesn't engage with you, doesn't do any of these things, right – it's not their fault. It's yours, right? Because you've done a bad idea of expressing your value proposition. The, it's never your customer's place to figure out your value proposition. It's your job to explain it to them and to make it enticing to them, to generate demand. But again, Let's hit a few things here, Dave. you got a lot of good talking points right here. 
we talk about Jake down at Alabama, and there's a few other sales teams that get this. The biggest tool to me for success is patience. It, and I was talking about this yesterday with a couple sales reps on one of my travels the other day. How many sales teams do you know have guys who have been with that organization for four plus years? And I look at the sales ladder of how long it takes these guys to build those rapports and relationships out there. I mean, year one, you're still trying to figure out how to get your feet wet. For most of these sales programs with 30, 40, 50 guys in their inside sales program, you're firing a significant number of those after six months. And the ones you do keep on, in some cases, is if they were lucky to have four people happen to pick up the phone and they got the sale, or if they happen to find a broker who could bury it under two or three different names and you play stupid with it. I mean, I'm looking at this whole process right now of how sales teams are developed, and I think there's a lot of fundamental flaws to which I say you got to give them time. You got to give them patience. And the big thing is I look at Jake's staff. I mean, look at how many guys he's kept on his staff down there at Alabama. And I'll tell you another one. Go look at the Indianapolis Indians. They have four guys in there who have a combined experience of over 40 years collectively. Oh, my God. That, that, they're, they're the most stable staff in sports, I think. Those guys – and and, and they, do, the they have guys that sell – and this is minor league baseball. I know that they, they, they have – they break the million-dollar mark in sales, which is really, really tough in minor league baseball. I mean those and guys – and they're and the constantly developing their staff. They're giving them the tools to success. They're giving them the ability to go out and learn new things. I know that because these guys, they come, they call me all the time. We talk constantly. And I it, see them all over the yeah, road. Same exactly thing. right. And I'll tell you the other part of that equation. We talk about patience. This is part two. When you do get a successful sales rep, the bigger thing I would say is, is don't get caught up analytically sitting there going, hmm, they make over $100,000 a year. What if I put somebody else in that slot that's a young kid, I pay them forty to $50,000 a year, and I still get the same amount of revenue off that for three or four years, and then crank them out, or whatever it is, one to two years? See, to me, if it's a, they're making $100,000, I want to know how I can help them make one hundred and fifty. Because, yes. I mean, that's t- to me, right? It, it, it's, it's not that they're a cost center. They're a profit center if, if I've done my things right. I think we – can get too blinded by the cost when it's like you should be looking at return on investment, right? Which is easy for me to say because that's kind of my gig. Um, but you you shouldn't be looking at like if somebody's successful, that they're a cost, they're a profit center. Because if they're not, it's maybe you've done something wrong. Again, you got to start by looking at like what's, what's working for me or what's not working, right? I think it's easy to take a swing and a whack at like the sales reps because – you know, they're defenseless in most cases. And my piece of advice number three, I mean, I'll say this a lot to people. Why is everyone so bent on jumping into jobs year after year after year? I mean, I, I call them mercenaries in this sport where it's literally you see a guy go from inside sales with X organization, go to be a group sales account exec with Y. A year later, they're going over to be in a, a senior account exec at X place and moving, just jumping all over. You're not creating any sort of stability, and everybody it's wants to talk unhealthy about unhealthy for the business. Yeah, everybody wants to talk about culture out there. That's a BS a- argument because what gets passed off as culture is always some BS thing, like clipping ties or or wearing championship belts or something. You know what the best culture is? Is when you enable people to perform to grow, to achieve more. That's culture, right? This other stuff is just like slapping each other on the back, rah-rah stuff, right? I mean, uh, there's. Uh, I'm not saying there's not a place for it, but if that's the primary driver of your culture, then your culture's screwed up, at and least to me. Say, and that's where I say, let me know when those guys who won the first week of the championship belt are sticking around for three to four more years because you made them feel valued. Because... You found opportunities for them to grow within your organization. If they can't grow within your organization, there's nothing wrong with telling them, hey, this is a great town. We're going to take care of you. 
if you want to stick around, we want you around. I don't see a whole lot of teams doing that. They ultimately say, and again, I mean, it's naturally on salespeople too, where they want to move up. They want to get power. I get that. But, and this is a line my dad's always said to me, you don't know how good you have it until you leave said team. There's a reason why somebody else is bringing you in to run an operation. And that's a real problem. I mean, you sit there and say, yeah, I want to go work for X team. And you find out um, I'm getting undercut and undermined the entire way. There's a reason why sales guys go there to die. And I'll tell you this part, too, along these lines. Some guys are not meant to be leaders. And I say this as a great example. How is it that Nick Saban, who never played in the NFL, is coaching guys that go in the NFL? I mean, think about that. I mean, I don't see, you know, I don't see Brett Favre coaching Alabama Crimson Tide right now. I don't see that. I don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. So it's a matter of, guys, it's a skill set thing, right? Coach? Everybody everybody has a different uh, skills that are, you know, strengths and weaknesses, right? And I, and I think it goes back to what you're talking about with the, with, you know, the path forward for people is the fact that, like, there need to be multiple ways for people to grow. And it can't just be, or it shouldn't just be, the one size fits all. Like, oh, well, I'm going to just move to another team, and instead of, uh, I'm going to be the manager in charge of inside sales now, right? Or something like this, because maybe you're not suited for that role. And there's nothing wrong with that, because being a really great salesperson is a fantastic skill to have, right? I mean, the world needs more fantastic salespeople, you know, and, and... so your only path forward shouldn't be that, like, well, the only thing I can do is become a sales manager. No, you got to, like, create more opportunities for people to grow in selling because it's, like, such a valuable skill that we don't have nearly enough great people doing it. Exactly. And I, I think this also stems back – and there's – like I said, there's a lot of problems to tackle here when I look at sales. I mean – uh, this to me is a huge one, and I don't want to knock this lightly. How many sport management programs are out there right now? If you had to guess, Dave, how many do you think there are? Well, I'd probably say somewhere in the vicinity of probably 150 or more. How many? At least 150, if not more. What's, I can count at least 50 within a four-hour circle of our offices in Toledo. I can count 50 off that number. Assuming that each program at minimum is spitting out 40 to 50 kids a year. So those 50 programs within my four-hour circle, that's 2,500 kids. That doesn't include the Northeast, doesn't include the Southeast, doesn't include Texas, doesn't include the West Coast. That doesn't include graduate programs. So we talk about this boiler room mentality that can be developed because you think of how many kids are coming out right now. I mean, we're sitting there to be honest with you. It's one of those things where, yeah, 2,500 kids, and there's how many pro teams? 150 or depends, so. It depends how you out. count that. I mean, but the thing, I guess the problem is, too, is if you're turning out, let's say, let's double the number, right? And we'll, it'll be a smaller number. It'll be 100 programs. And you say you're, you're pumping out maybe maybe 5,000 kids, 5,000 kids a year or something like that, right? Are you giving them the skills they need to be successful? And I would have to say probably not really because most of the time the way to be successful or to get your foot in the door, and this is for me, right, was to be able to sell, right? And so if you can – and there's like very few sales classes. Right. And I mean, it, whether it is sales classes or not, I mean, we're talking just sheer number of kids coming out. It's like, I don't want to say it's like the Russian army in World War II or nothing here, but that's what I'm looking at is you send people over the hill to charge, how many of them are going to survive? I mean, there's a big fallout number. When I look at some of these sport management programs, I mean, it's great when they tell me where some of their kids have got jobs, some of them. 
But I look at and go, where are they at for jobs number two and jobs number three? Because it is about survival. It is being able, how do you survive and adapt? And right now, sales is generally a great way to go. And I've had a great discussion with a couple athletic directors before where, hey, there are more ways to break into sports. You can go through working in a compliance office. You can go through the facilities and event route. I'm not discounting those routes at all. It's just where I'm having problems is I'm looking at just the sheer number of kids coming out, going into the Hunger Games, known as sports business. And it's almost the Hunger Games. I always say to them, may the odds be ever in your favor if you take an inside sales job with X organization who has 40 other inside sales reps, does all the tie cuttings and ringing of the bells and hanging stuff. I, I'm very fundamental in those regards. And you, you talk about building the ideal sales force. I mean, your inside sales staff should truly be a farm system for developing your guys, not a boiler room. So you ask me where problems could be fixed? I would say, hey, it, it's time to be honest out there. Do we really need this many sport management programs? Do we really need to be selling false hopes and dreams? I mean, especially when we talk about, and again, this goes looking at the whole country where it affects me as a ticket broker. I sit there and I look at how many kids come out with a degree in sports management. That's great. What can you do? Well, and that's the, the bingo, right? What can you do? And I get the blank answer. Some of them, I mean, I've always said it. I'm a cockroach. I find a way to adapt and survive. If it means I'm not selling tickets, I'll find something else to go do because I feel like I've developed enough skill sets to do that over the years. Keep in mind, I'm only 28. I'm not a guy who's been in this game that long. But ultimately, it's one of those things where if if you're going to try to cut it in sports sports business here, you better know what you're getting into. And I, I just feel like that lesson is not clear. And when I look at how many people come out with a sports management degree and don't end up working in sports business in a few years, well, guess what? They got sold on the hopes and dreams and now have a $100,000 debt from X university. And unfortunately, yeah. that's like, I mean, that, you know, again, you open the door to like a bigger conversation because that's not just like in sports business either. It's just like some of the, like the, the, you know, sort of assembly line degrees that kids are getting in general, right? It's just the whole, I mean, the sports management program thing is just like a, a, sim, a symbolic of a larger educational problem that we're facing in general, which is like people aren't necessarily being developed. You know, they're getting, they're getting shuffled through to get degrees and stuff and getting educations, and then they don't know how to apply it. It's just there's no you know, they're not being given the skills that they need to be successful. That's, you know, that's why, like, I applaud guys and, um, lady, you know, like the, like Wendy D's at Miami, right? Uh, you know, those, those, those people down there, they do a great job of getting kids jobs, right? Which is unique. You know, Bill Sutton in South Florida does the same thing. They, mm-hmm. he's got, they do a great job of making sure that the kids get jobs. Um, you know, and I know that those, like those programs specifically, and I think like, you know, the one you, you've been affiliated with in Ohio, they do a good job of like making sure people stay involved and like as part of the community. So like everybody doesn't, you know, just get the degree and then they're off on their own. But the other thing is, I mean, it's great. I remember going back and sitting in on the undergrads and I remember sitting back the one time and the one professor sits there and says, this is not for the lighthearted. This business is going to eat a lot of you alive if you don't want to put in the effort. Understand that before you, you come into this field. Otherwise, you're at one of the best schools that will give you the resources to play ball. You're at one of the best schools that will set you up for opportunities. It's a question of do you walk through the door or do you walk out of the door? and into something else other than sports. If you really want to work in this, you better be ready for everything that comes with it. And they tell them flat out, as an inside sales rep, you're not going to make that much working for X team. You're not going to have fancy commissions. Your parents are not going to be... Wait, I'm not going to make six figures my first year? Wait. 
What? I know. Shocker. You want to go make six figures a year, I hear there's a lot of them out on Wall Street, but that means going to get an economics degree and taking internships out there when you're young. But for me, it's one of those things where, again, I don't want to feel like I'm scaring kids of going in the sports business, but it's one of those things where you either better be darn good selling or develop a real good niche. And lucky for me, when I worked, you know, worked at Ohio State, I worked at a lot of weird jobs during undergrad. I, my list is like a grocery list there. But I picked up the talent of buying and selling tickets. I mean, that's a unique talent skill to have. And last I checked, it's one that can still put food on the table, being able to create my own value. No different than a sales guy who can sit there and look at their ROI or looking at an event management person and going, well, look how much time we saved you in this transition. Look how much money we saved you in not paying for this personnel member. Yeah, so. yeah no, I, I mean, I, I completely understand. I mean, I get it, right? I mean, I tell – I mean, I had a, 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 an indirect line to most of these things, right? Like, I mean, in college, I worked for the city in the Parks and Recreation Department. I um, was the aquatics – director for 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 a city um i worked for several cities um i I, you know i I didn't i opened nightclubs i was bartender i uh was waiter for a while i mean i worked in theater right i did market marketing and selling for theater um i work you know i did all kinds of crazy stuff right it is um you know and it makes you adaptable and i think that one of the one of the challenges that maybe like on this part, and I don't want to spend too much more time on the, on the, like that aspect of it though, is that when kid, you know, I don't think that the diversity of experiences and like being well-rounded is given enough um, emphasis anymore. I think, you know, everybody wants to be a specialist um, or, you know, like that seems that everybody's kind of been pushed into this idea that being a specialist is the only way forward. And I would say that being a generalist is much more valuable because the thing is, is like your insights become uh, much more um, well-rounded, right? And, you know, which I guess is like, I've said that before, Um, you know, and I think it's important because the thing is, is like the insights you develop are going to be much more valuable to you in your career than like any technical skills, Right. Um, Absolutely. Totally with you. As an undergrad, yes. I think getting different experiences and different realms. And I think that was something I was very lucky with in my undergrad time. I can tell you I've worked concessions, I've worked parking and traffic, worked event management, worked in the marketing arm, the sponsorship arm, and a ticket office. I got a taste of what I wanted and what I didn't. And because of those experiences, I was able to sit there, go into grad school, and say, hey, I have an understanding of this, but I want to go here with this. There was, okay, I see you carry an axe. Let's sharpen that thing and make it that much stronger of an axe. And it's one of those things where, yeah, a liberal arts education in sports is not a bad thing. It just becomes a question of do you get the right experiences? Do you find what you like? And can you become pretty darn good at what you do? You know? I think eventually it becomes, yeah, let's specialize. But in those early ages, especially coming out of high school, going into college, like I tell my freshmen, I encourage them to go take on different experiences. Even if you're not getting internship credit, there's nothing wrong with that. I get it. You're paying a boatload of money. Go out there and try different things. Go volunteer for an NCAA event coming to town. Go Work in the box office at the Huntington Center in Toledo. Go do those things. You'll learn what you get good at and what you aren't good at. You'll learn what you like and don't like. Learn who you want to work for and who you don't want to work for. So, I mean, take it as you want. But trying to discourage kids from taking opportunities until they're juniors and seniors in college, in some cases after they graduate when they do their internship, I carry a beef with that because at that point you'll have been just a student for four years and were you really doing anything over those previous three years? 
yeah. especially if your GPA was a little dicey. That's when you get into some real hot water with these kids. It's like, what good did you really do with a sports management degree? Yeah. Well, I think enough about the sports management degrees. Let me ask you one one question though, because you bring up an interesting. You know, we went down a, an interesting path, which is like how um, you're developing your staff, because that's important. Because I think the thing is, is like we need to, you know, just like any other industry, there needs to be a little more stability in the career paths for people. Um, and you know, I think that starts with like the way kids are educated and the way they're hired and trained and, you know, throughout the whole thing. And we kind of touched on, you know, the turbulent waters that are facing the ticket and entertainment industry so far. Um, we kind of touched on a lot of stuff. Um, you know, that's the challenges, but where do you see some of the opportunities that are coming forward? You know, where, where, where are you, where, what opportunities do you see presenting themselves for people? You know, um, both on the primary and the secondary side. So in terms of opportunities, it's, this is a great question. The best part about this country is there's over 330 million people. Not everyone's going to be able to afford going to an NFL game, but they're going to be able to go to a minor league game. They're going to be able to go to some of those other events. I think a grand opportunity across the board. I look at these development offices where, you know, some of them are looking at the tax reforms right now. It's not favorable to their situations. I've seen, get this, I've seen high schools add development officers where they go out and fundraise. There's a whole niche out there that could use that knowledge base. So I get it. It's maybe transitioning out of sports to an extent, but there's going to be opportunities in those fields. And when I say, hey, you're not going to be able to go into, you know, you're not going to be able to buy tickets to some of these things as they continue to price themselves out. That means having to dig into backwaters. That means having to set up some of these smaller teams to be ramped up. I mean, for crying out loud, soccer right now is growing in this country absurdly. The USL is adding another division right now. I mean, they're getting themselves under sound footing. Uh, I look at the basketball G League. That's developing right now. And football. They've got two new leagues coming out with the AAF and the XFL again. And I think there's a real opportunity for spring football. So I, I really sit there and I go, I think eventually one of the football leagues is going to merge into the other because they're going to look at what teams were doing it sound and what teams weren't. But I think at the end of the day, sports is still a big part of this country's culture at the end of the day. Let's not kid ourselves. We're not going to give it up lightly, unlike some other things in life. I, I think we've got a real good shot to continue to grow what is sports business. I think there's still a lot of solidification still to be made. And on the ticketing end, I mean, I've, I mean, I've alluded to it already throughout this call. My question becomes: When do people look at their ticket prices and say, "We've priced a lot of people out. It's great that we got the one percenters who could afford this, but what about the other ninety-nine? And that's I a think, good. That's a really good point because you know this is a point again. You bring up a lot of points uh, that I like typically bring up. But if you're trying to make everything premium, then you know what that means. Nothing is premium. I mean, and that's like sort of the, the, the danger, I think. And what happens to all those guys who have bought non-premium through the years? Just because they can't afford the premium space, you've made your entire facility, they no longer can get in? I mean, we've talked about it with NASCAR. That's a growing problem. Like, it's, you want to price yourself like premium, Fine. How many of you have taken a look at your demographic and have asked yourself, hmm, if I'm on assisted living in the state of Ohio, how much do I get for food stamps, for my rent, for everything? And you break down an actual budget. I think when people realize, hey, they can only stretch their dollar so far, that's when sports can get back on track in terms of full attendance again. I really think that. I think when people sit there and do an actual breakdown of their customer's wallet, and that's something I think that gets missed heavily. They sit there and always say, 
what can they potentially afford, like of their discretionary income or whatever. They don't look at, hey, guess what? They've still got to pay for the gas to get them to work. they still got to pay for food to get put on the table. And what happens if milk jumps again by 200% just for no random reason or whatever it is? Or peanut butter goes from $2 a jar to $6 a jar again. I mean, you're looking at a lot of factors. No, yeah, let's not forget the school districts where, hey, we see it in Ohio all the time. The rates keep going up every year. What happens if you're trying to raise your ticket prices by 200 bucks a piece and the school district raised their uh, tax levies by $300? Who do you think is going to win that argument? And I'll give you a hint. It's not going to be the teams nine out of ten times. Which is why that big box in everybody's room looks pretty darn tempting at the end of the day. But yeah, it, it, most of, so many of these decisions are they can become maddening because they just don't reflect reality, right? And it's not um, reality to like oh like, like being pessimistic or, or optimistic one way or the other. It's just like saying like, hey, look, there's only so much that people have to spend, right? It's, you know, and not everybody is in the 1% or not everybody does get their tickets through like buying them for, from their, you know, from their company. You know, it's like being realistic um, because if you, tr- if you, if you make it so that like, it's only a, um, a special occasion thing, you're limiting your audience. Right. And, you know, and I think what continues to happen over and over again and I don't know. Maybe it's the business models of the, of these things are broken, which you would think that with the reported uh, revenue numbers of like the t you know of the TV contracts and some of these other uh, the revenue streams that it wouldn't be the case. But maybe maybe these business models are under such strain too that they they feel like the only way they can capture anything and they can make hay is by charging these extortionate prices and these really really heavy um, prices. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, it, it's really an interesting challenge, right? And I, and I think if you continue down the road that everybody's going, you're going to see the attendance uh, challenges and the attention challenges um, get worse before they get better, if if they can get better, because it's no guarantee that people come back. Not at all. It's why I, I laugh so hard every time I see Mike Guffrey get into it with somebody on this topic. It's one of those things where it's like, it's great you made all this revenue. But how many people were in the stands? What was your drop count? Everybody wants to throw around drop count like it's a buzzword right now. It should be a buzzword. But the problem is, is everybody sits there and says, oh, well, we made all this revenue. Nothing's wrong. I disagree. The canaries are going off in the coal mines right now. And as we've alluded to, I think there's a recession coming down the tracks. And I think with confidence, by 2020, about June or July, you will see the full effects of what overpricing has done combined with people's wallets tightening up, like I was just talking about a few minutes ago. If you want my boldest prediction, that's it, it's going to be – I'm going to call it a sports depression – in terms of actual attendance. People turn to sport no different than when they turn to um, their beverages when things are good and bad. They truly do. They will turn to it like no other. Alcohol sales go up in a recession, Matt. Yes, they do. And they also go up when times are good. Same with sports. However, unlike the last recession we had, we've had dynamic pricing through the walls. We've had it. I mean... And like I told somebody the other day, it's great that Taylor Swift brought in a record amount of revenue. Let me know how she does if and when the state of Michigan ever goes through a recession like they did the last time. I'm confident selling out Ford Field would be a genuine pain in the neck at the numbers she tried to charge at this last tour. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I get that's for half a, a, uh, that, that Taylor Swift thing. I. I you know, I've spent probably way more time on that than I really it, des- sure. it deserves at a certain point. But there's two things that I think everybody, you know, Lord knows they they wave the the big picture money thing at, at the um, at me all the time. Number one, 
is at the prices that she was charging, she probably should have made twice as much money, right? So that, you know, and as Bob Leftless has pointed out on his uh, in his blog and on his newsletter, um, you know, the game she was playing with her fans, right? At some point, is going to have going to have an impact, right? All those boosts and all that stuff. It was all BS. It was all. Um, I would say misleading and dishonest. Um, you know, the, my point with this thing is like, if you make money, please do right. But the thing is, like, don't make a promise to your customers and not keep it. Don't treat your customers in a way that is harmful or dishonest, or that is, um, you know, treats them like they're, you know, dupes or marks. And I, I felt like some of the ways that she manipulated the pricing and the boosts and stuff ended up being it. And I'm sure, and I don't know if it's her fault or her management team's fault or whomever's fault, but it just seems dishonest to me. And I know that that's going to have an impact at some point, right? I said, you know, I use the examples of the Grateful Dead and Pearl Jam all over the world, right? Because they have both shown, and REM would be another one who, you know, they don't, they're not around in any shape or form now, but they all showed a path of treating your customers with respect and that customers rewarding them with business and attention and a long and profitable career. You know, can the same be said for what Taylor Swift is that? You know, she maybe made money in the short term, but, you know, and maybe she made more money than she knows what to do. We'll never have to worry about it again, right? Um, but I don't know if that's the case. And, I, you know, and I see that happening over and over and over again, right? It's the same thing with sports and tickets, right? It's like if you can get somebody to buy a season ticket and then the person next to them is getting the thing either comped or uh, heavily discounted all the time, you've broken the promise to the fan who is dedicated their most, you know, is your most dedicated. And I don't know that people, I don't know that you come back from that. And I, you know, and, and that's what I think the big challenge is, is like, you have to have respect for your customers. You can't just treat them like, you know, like they, like you are owed their attention and their money because you aren't. Well, and that's the way they've operated. I mean, and I've said this example with you multiple times in the last couple of weeks. Look what happened when Michigan football tried to dynamically price the Ohio State game in that entire season in 2013. They produced record revenues that year. It was phenomenal. What do you think happened the following year? They couldn't give tickets away. They had to, they had Coke bottles with free tickets for Michigan football. How does that sound for clinically crazy? Am I missing something there? Hey, I look. If you're the University of Michigan and you're having the like struggle to give away tickets, you've done something wrong. I mean, that's just that should be a um, full stop, a sign of alarm. But you know, I mean, we we seem to exist. You know, and this is one of those things that again, I'm going to point to Bob Lefsitz because you know he writes about this stuff. Um, if I'm forceful, he's even more forceful than I am, you know, and he, he points to it in the con in concerts and music, whereas, you know, I me, mean, I was more sports and theater. Um, you know, these industries are historically known for lying and inflating numbers, right? Um, you know, so you can give me the number, but I don't know if it's true because I can't confirm it, right? And, you know, and I think that the only the only way that we'll start to see things start correcting and getting better as far as from attendance and uh, overcoming some of these challenges and, and, and taking advantage of some of these opportunities is that people are willing to deal with them honestly. Um, and until that point happens, we're going to continue to see uh, attendance struggles and we're going to continue to see this sort of, um, I, I, I liken it to uh, monkeys at the zoo flinging crap at people um, back and forth between the primary and the secondary side because um, I know that I get flack for maybe being a little too uh, friendly or cozy to the secondary market, but really it's, um, as I've told you many occasions, I'm indifferent to where it is. It's the need to treat customers fairly and, um, and be customer-centric in your approach. Um, and in many cases, that isn't necessarily done by the primary side. And so sometimes that, that, that customer-centric thing is handled better on the secondary side. Because without it, um, without a customer, you have nothing. And in, in a lot of cases, despite what the numbers say, I don't see the customers. And that's a challenge. And that's both a challenge and an opportunity. 
Well, that goes back to what we've talked about all along. When you look at these, you know, sales teams that change over guys on a daily basis. I mean, how are you supposed to build any sort of continuity and stability when you've taken their legs out from underneath them? But I don't know. I feel like I've been beating a dead horse there, but hey. I I get it. And I'm going to quote my friend Richard Howell, who's been on the podcast before. Because the other night when we were in London having some drinks, um, he said, we, we came across this line. I don't know if I said it or he did. Because we had several gin and tonics. They were great. If you ever get a chance to go drink gin and tonics in London, do. Especially with Richard Howell. Um, is that the profits are in the people. So you have to always keep in mind that you're dealing, you're people dealing with people. And that people develop, build relationships, not necessarily really with a team, but as much as with a team or an organization, with the people who are there. And so if you're constantly neutering that relationship, it's a challenge. If you as the manager or the person in charge aren't investing in your people, you can't expect to have sustainable long-term profits. You always have, you'll always do better if you're focused on people, you know, and, and I don't know any other better way of putting that. And I'll say Richard said it, um, but it could have been either one of us. <coughs> so Matt, how can people find you on the internet? Well, you can always find me on Twitter at Hotwire to Wire. Um, been pretty vocal on that recently, having some fun there. Uh, LinkedIn, feel free to add me at Matt DeWire. Still on there, despite uh, all the random invites I still get. And then, yeah, at ValhallaTickets.com. So, yeah, I feel like I've barely talked about our company, what we do, but it's amazing what's going on out there in the world, you know? I mean, hey like we talked about if you don't have a pulse on what's going on out there how am i supposed to survive in this business you know well i mean that's the um one of the really nice things about doing this podcast is that i do get to keep a even better pulse on the industry because i get to talk to really smart people um from really different backgrounds so i want to thank you for taking the time to do the podcast today dave anytime let me know when you want me back on again Once again, I want to thank my guest, Matt DeWire from Valhalla Tickets, for being on the podcast. As always, you can find out what I'm up to by visiting my website. It's www.davewakeman.com. You can follow me on the Twitter, at David Wakeman, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. As always, if you dig what the, I'm doing with the podcast, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. We're on Stitcher, we're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes, we're on all those things. Um, and if you're so inclined, please leave a review. It helps a lot with the rankings and it helps make sure people continue to see what we're up to. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.